You're listening to the Gesher Podcast, the place where the Jewish and evangelical Christian communities come together to talk about the things that matter. I'm your host, Ty Perry, ministry representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry here in sunny Las Vegas, Nevada. Thanks for joining me. The Holocaust is one of the most recognizable tragedies of history, yet it is also one of the most misunderstood. Approximately 11 million people perished during the Holocaust, 5 million Gentiles, and 6 million Jews. The magnitude of such an atrocity is beyond human comprehension, which is why books and documentaries on the subject continue to proliferate nearly eight decades after World War II's end. Each book, each documentary and movie, is an attempt to tell a part of the story, but not one of them is capable of telling it in its entirety. The Sperling Kronberg Mack Holocaust Resource Center in Las Vegas is a repository of those stories. It provides print, non-print, and electronic resources free to the public to develop programs for the education of children and adults in issues relating to the Holocaust, tolerance, and diversity. Susan Dubin, as Library Director and Education Specialist at the Center, is the keeper and sharer of these stories. She's here with me to talk about the work the Holocaust Resource Center is doing to keep alive not only the memory of the Holocaust, but its lessons too. Susie, welcome to the Gesher Podcast. Thank you, Ty. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Susie, I've known you for a few years now, and uh, I know that uh, while your family did not go through the Holocaust, uh, their move to the United States was in part motivated by anti-Semitism they were facing. Can you tell me a little bit about your background with that? Yes, absolutely. My mother was actually born in Russia in the Caucasus. Her family lived in that area for many, many years. I believe that they were originally from Spain. After the Inquisition, Jews moved to that part of the world. And so some of the Jews that are Sephardim from Spain lived in that area. And some of our customs really are more like the Sephardic Jews than the Ashkenazi Jews, who were the Jews from Eastern Europe. Her father was a Bolshevik. And because of that, he was wanted by the Tsar. <laughs> he used to get arrested on a regular basis, and he eventually knew that he had to leave or he would be sent to the salt mines. So he immigrated to the United States in the early part of the 1900s. He then sent for my mother, who was a baby, and my grandmother. And my mother and my grandmother escaped from the small town where they lived in a hay wagon and made their way to the Black Sea and then through parts of Europe and then came across the ocean to the United States in 19... 12 or 13. We're not sure of the exact dates. So it sounds, it reminds me a lot of Fiddler on the Roof, uh, the Bolshevik uh, threat to the czar and uh, the pogroms. Absolutely. The pogroms, most people don't realize, but the pogroms were almost as damaging to the Jewish people as the Holocaust. Now, some of my evangelical listeners might not know what a pogrom is exactly. Could you define that? 
Well, it's it's well defined in Fiddler on the Roof, but basically what it was was government sanctioned raids in Jewish communities by the soldiers, the police, the neighbors who were not Jewish. When they would go through the town, they would attack the Jews on the street, they would break into houses, steal whatever valuables they could find. And in some cases, there was rape involved. In many cases, children were taken away, especially young boys were taken because there was money paid if you could bring somebody into the army. So many young boys were taken. um, And many Jews left in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and that was really one of the first waves of Jewish immigration to the United States. As you're saying that, I'm thinking of um, part of history that is, to me, very painful, but is part of history, and that is that in Europe, you had the marrying of, of church and state, and because of that perfect storm, anti-Semitism often thrived. You had theological anti-Semitism in the church. You had political anti-Semitism, just civil anti-Semitism. And so in Europe, that those things came together, which made the pogroms possible. One of the things that I learned from you um, early on when I would come to the resource center is that the Holocaust did not happen in a vacuum. It was, it did not originate with Adolf Hitler. And it certainly came about, at least partially, out of the pogroms and the long history of anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, Can you draw a line for us from those pogroms to the Holocaust, just generally? How did that develop? Well, part of it is because Russia decided that they were going to allow Jews to actually move into different areas. At that time, Poland was part of Russia. Part of Poland was part of Russia. And Jews moved to that area, and it was called the Pale of Settlement. And that's where many of the Eastern European Jews were from. Now, because they moved there, there were people there. And whenever you have a migration of people who are moving into a space that other people are already in, there is going to be friction. So that was part of it. You mentioned the marriage of the church to political and cultural life in Europe, and that was another part of it. Jews were blamed for the death of Jesus, Uh, historically speaking. There were many uh, different myths and and lies that were told about the Jews. Uh, one of them is the blood libel, which unfortunately is still something which is being used, uh, which was used to say that Jews were killing Christian children, and it precipitated many attacks on Jewish communities throughout history from pretty much the time of the Dark Ages yeah. and onward, especially through the Crusades. Uh, Jews were 
if something went wrong in a town, if the Jews were there, they were usually blamed for it. During the time of the plague, they were blamed for the plague because many Jews did not get ill from the plague because of the laws in Judaism about bathing. And so they were targeted because of that. So the fact that anti-Semitism already existed made it easy for Hitler's policies to be accepted because people already were thinking, ah, the Jews, they're the source of all of our problems. There was a, a myth put out, a lie put out, through a book that was called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was one of the big books of anti-Semitism, and it was actually one of the books that Hitler and his minister of public relations used to whip up frenzy against the Jews because it said that the Jews had this secret plan to take over the world. So it was easy. And one of the things I usually tell my classes is Hitler really didn't have any new ideas. He stole most of his plans from things that were already in existence. Yes. And lest uh, we take comfort in thinking that the Holocaust, that anti-Semitism was merely a European thing. Um, I remember reading that Henry Ford, through his Dearborn Independent newspaper, and certainly as he produced the Ford cars, which revolutionized travel in the United States. Um, with those good things, he also distributed copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and uh, influenced a lot of Americans to buy into the idea that there was a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. It was a very popular political belief in the United States in the 1930s. There was a great deal of anti-Semitism, and there were a lot of Nazis in the United States. The Nazi party was active here during that time period. So one of the problems that we see of why the United States didn't step in earlier is because the um, Franklin Roosevelt was sensitive to public opinion, and public opinion was not in favor of helping Jews. The human heart is fickle, and uh, so is public opinion, because we change all the time. Um, Thank goodness. (laughs) Thankfully, we do. Uh, Sometimes it's beneficial, sometimes it's not. But thankfully, in in this regard, at least, anti-Semitism has become something that's uh, not not only the Jewish community is fighting, thankfully. Tell me a little bit about the Holocaust Resource Center. I know that it's here to educate the community about the Holocaust. Um, When did that start? The Resource Center was actually established in the late 1970s. It was the first building of it was in 1980. In 1979, the whole idea was organized through the government in Nevada through the governor of Nevada, and he took it on as a line item in his budget to allow people to have information about the Holocaust. He was influenced by the woman who founded 
the resource center, Edith Katz. She was an amazing woman. She was very active in Las Vegas area, but she also was influential in Reno. And so the resource center here serves Las Vegas, but we are part of the governor's advisory council on matters relating to the Holocaust, which serves the entire state. So we have two other locations. One is in Reno, and that's the Shia Srut Library, which is part of the public library system in Reno. Okay. And one in Elko, which is the Holocaust Resource Center in the Elko County Library as well. So we are trying to serve as much of the of the state as we can. Here in Las Vegas, the Resource Center developed slowly over time, and it started out with some books, and then a media center was developed, so we had film at the time, and uh, if you recognize Remember VCRs? We actually, we actually have tapes that are VCRs, and uh, that was our move into multimedia. And then when I came on board in 2012, I took the books that were in existence in the library, which were in no order and just kind of on shelves. A librarian's nightmare. Yes, <laughs> and I. Uh, put them in order and catalog them. And Ty, you helped do some of that work for us. And we put all of our books online and we are now on an, in an online catalog, which can be reached over the internet. People can actually see our collection and reserve books if they would like to do that. I know that one of the most, I think probably one of the most impactful programs that you have here at the center is essentially teaching teachers how to teach the Holocaust. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, when I, when I came on board, um, they usually had one event a year, which was a teacher workshop. And then they would invite teachers and students to a dinner. And that was an annual event. When I came on board, I started working with Myra, Berkowitz, who was here before me, and she and I developed some classes, some after-school workshops for teachers. Those morphed into classes which teachers could actually take for credit. So I started to write courses that could be used by teachers in middle and high school and upper elementary to teach them some of the various subtopics about the Holocaust to give them various ways to present it. Unfortunately, the curriculum for high school and middle school students is very, very overcrowded. So there isn't really time for most of them to devote the time that it would be necessary to give a full Holocaust education to their students. At the most, they can usually give a week or maybe two weeks. And that's in a history class. Mm -hmm. What I found is that they were also using some novels in the literature classes. And they really weren't tying in 
the literature to the history. So I developed some classes which would do that, which would make sure that when a student read the diary of Anne Frank, it wasn't in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. They would have some of the background of what was happening around Anne so they could really understand the story. Sure. Right now, I have 15 classes, which are all 15 hours each, and teachers can take them for professional development credit. And they're on a variety of topics. And I have teachers that are history teachers, language arts teachers, counselors, special ed teachers, music teachers, art teachers, physical education teachers. And the idea is that even if they can't teach a whole week of Holocaust information, they might be able to do one piece of it. For example, if a music teacher is talking about the history of music from Europe, she could easily put in some Holocaust songs. Yes. And that would give their the students a little bit of background, and it might help enrich them and get them to be curious and then look into more information on their own. There's nothing nothing wrong with teaching the Holocaust. We want it taught, but it has to be taught the correct way. And one of the things I also learned from you, Susie, is there are different ways to introduce the Holocaust, as you've said, but there's also, uh, there's an age when you want to introduce the Holocaust to children. And um, you, I think you've set that at around sixth grade or so, if I remember correctly. Um, what are some resources that you would recommend to educators or even to parents who want their children to know about the Holocaust, but they also want it to be at an age-appropriate level? Well, as you said, I don't believe that the Holocaust should really be introduced in any formal way until students are around 12. They really are not mature enough to deal with all of the different issues. However, before they get to that time, parents can introduce topics such as loss, such as what happens when you have to move someplace, and how can you be a compassionate person. And those are topics that you can find even picture books for very, very young students. And having a grounding and understanding some of these emotional components will help students once they get old enough to start looking at what happened during the Holocaust. So some of the first books that I would recommend for young students, there's a book called The Promise of a New Spring, which is a picture book. It's an allegory. It was written by Gerda Weissman Klein. Oh, yes. And it was really one of the very first books for young people about the Holocaust. And it introduces the Holocaust in such a way that students that hear the story, if they are old enough, can make the connection to what happened during the Holocaust. But even if they're not, they can understand how when a forest burns down, it's a loss for the creatures that lived there. And that's the metaphor that's used for that particular book. 
One of the earliest books that I think works well for students is called The Number on My Grandfather's Arm. And they've actually reissued that book. And now it's called The Number on My Great Grandfather's Arm because the generation has changed. Moved on. (laughs) But it's a very gentle story. It's done with photographs and very few words on the page. And it's about a young child who's washing dishes with their grandfather. And they see the tattoo of the number that was put on prisoners that were in Auschwitz. Hmm. And the child naturally says, what's that? And the grandfather explains in very few words, very simple language, what happened, that he was incarcerated. It was a terrible time that many people were killed. And because the grandfather's still alive, it's a gentle way to introduce it to a young child. Yeah. There's another book that I think is really good for uh, sixth graders, approximately. It's called Hannah's Suitcase. And that is a true story. It's based on a teacher in Japan who was teaching third grade. And in Japan, they wanted the students to understand about the Holocaust. And of course, they had no knowledge. They probably had never met anyone who was Jewish. But the teacher got the idea that she would write to Auschwitz and see if they had any artifacts. And they sent her a suitcase. Hmm. So she had her third graders start doing research to try and find out who this suitcase belonged to. The book is wonderful because it takes one chapter talking about the class and what they're doing, which is modern times, and then the next chapter tells what they're finding out about the person who owned the suitcase, who was a little girl named Hannah. I had the great privilege when I was a school librarian in Los Angeles to actually have the author of the book come and speak to our school. But the capper, the wonderful thing, is she brought the teacher from Japan. Oh, incredible. Who brought the suitcase. The suitcase, wow. And Hannah, the little girl who the suitcase belonged to, actually didn't survive. Mm. But her brother did. And her brother lived in Montreal, and he came as well. Incredible. That's an experience that those students that heard that will never, ever, ever forget. Yes. And it makes the Holocaust real to them, but in a way that's not as threatening because it's done with an object. It's done with students that are basically their age, Mm -hmm. and the brother was there and he survived. So books like that are are invaluable. You mentioned that it helps the children understand, relate to the Holocaust. I think one of the problems, I I think there's two problems. I talked to um, a friend of mine who's Jewish, and he said that one of the problems for him raising his children is that they heard so much about the Holocaust that they became almost numb to it. That Yeah, it's part of our history. Let's move on. The other side, I think, is uh, more where I come from, and that is the Holocaust. Oh, that was a, that's a Jewish thing. It's not. Um, how would you, I guess, in both circumstances, answer those 
dilemmas. Uh, one with the Jewish family who the, the children hear about it all the time and one where the Gentile family, they don't really see that it relates to them. Well, first of all, as you said, the Holocaust is not a Jewish event. It was a world tragedy. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that of the 11 million approximately people who were murdered, 5 million of them were not Jewish. They were others. So that's almost half. So you can't really say it's only the Jews. It wasn't, number one. So for the people who don't think it relates to them, it does. Unfortunately, the Holocaust is the ultimate moral tale of what can happen when you allow hate to take over. And that's a topic which is relevant to Jews, non-Jews, to people who have heard all about the Holocaust but don't understand why it relates to them. It relates to them because those feelings of hate, those feelings of resentment of others, of looking at people who are different than you and judging them, those are problems that exist today. Every generation. Always. And I think that they are part of human nature Mm -hmm. to be afraid of people that they don't know and that they don't understand. So what do they do? They demonize them. When we study the Holocaust, we talk about that tendency of humans to do that, and how you can recognize if that's what's happening and combat it. And that's really the ultimate goal of Holocaust education. It's not just, oh my God, look at this horrible thing that happened. Right. It's, look at this horrible thing that happened, and let's be careful that we don't let something like this happen again. In the room in which we're sitting here at uh, Temple Beth Shalom, where the Resource Center is housed, we have, I don't know, how many how many photographs are hanging here? Do you know? I know, 61. 61. <laughs> and uh, just, just so my listeners can understand, these are all black and white uh, photographs of elderly people. And most of them are smiling. And these are all Holocaust survivors who live or have lived in the Las Vegas Valley. Um, Many of them are gone now uh, since these photographs were taken, but many of them are still here. And I've heard many of them speak, uh, several of them. I've had the privilege of knowing them. And what's always impressive to me is that they're, it's, they're, the mantra, never again, we need, to, we need to learn from the lessons of the past, it's not just a mantra to them. It's the way they live their lives. And they want to make sure that future generations understand that um, this can happen. It did happen. It happened in enlightened Europe. It could happen in the Western world or the, the Eastern world again. Um, adults, um, I think maybe we're a challenge to help us to understand. It's a, it's a challenge to help us understand the gravity of the situation and how it is um, not just something that we learn about on the History Channel. It's a real event. What are some resources that you would recommend adults take part in to learn more about the Holocaust? Well, my favorite book for people to own 
that is general information about the Holocaust is The World Must Know. Mm, yes. And it is a book by Michael Berenbaum, who was instrumental in setting up the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., and now is at the USC Shoah Foundation and at the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles Museum of Tolerance. And it is a very comprehensive overview of what happened during the Holocaust. And so that is a book that I would recommend. But getting back to your comment about the survivors, there was a recent study done by Echoes and Reflections, which has an excellent curriculum about teaching of the Holocaust. And in the study, they found that people that studied about the Holocaust were most affected by stories from the survivors, Hmm. testimonies. There are testimonies available online for free from Eyewitness, which is through the Shoah Foundation, which was started by Steven Spielberg. And you can actually go on that there, sign in, and search for a topic, and actually listen to survivors tell their story. It's an incredible resource. It's an amazing resource. And now, just about a week ago, they announced that they are putting some of their AI recordings available for free online. What that is, is they have filmed and recorded some of the survivors telling all kinds of information. And you can go into this particular place on the Shoah Foundation website and meet the survivor. And you see them and they move and they talk to you and you can ask them any question and they will answer it as if they are really sitting in the room with you. We have a local survivor who has gone through that process and his AI presentation is available online as well. His name is Ben Lesser, and just for that piece of what he did alone, he should be recognized. It makes the Holocaust real. You're talking to a live person or a simulation of a live person that seems like they're alive in front of you. And you have a real personal connection to the person. So getting back to the study that they did, what they showed is that people who were taught about the Holocaust through testimonies like this actually remembered the information more and they were better citizens because of it, hmm. because they were able to empathize with those around them. Not a surprise. That makes sense. And that's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. I I had a chance to look at Ben's um, AI presentation and I've had the opportunity to sit down with Ben in person. And certainly there's a difference, but it's slight. It's a, it's a pretty... Uh, pretty good likeness of Ben to just sit down and and speak with him that way. Um, You mentioned hearing the the first person 
testimonies of the Holocaust. Um, what are some books that you would recommend uh, written by survivors? Ooh, now you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, so it's hard for me to choose one and yeah. say, this is wonderful. One of the books that I really like is by Joanne Gilbert. And it is a story that is not as well known. It's a book where she interviews four women who were young women at the time, and they were in the resistance. So there are two stories that are not often told when you talk about the Holocaust. One is of the resistance. Mm -hmm. There is a myth that the Jews went to their death like lambs to the slaughter, and that is not true. Right. There was resistance throughout and in various ways. And the other is that people didn't help them, and that is also not true. There is a growing number of people who we call the righteous among the nations, who are recognized in Israel for the work that they did in helping large groups, small groups, even one family to exist. And they are the rescuers. Yeah. And those are two stories that I think are important to tell. And actually, the stories that I would share with the younger people who are learning about the Holocaust first, because you want them to have hope. So I would say those are great books to use. Uh, one of the books that I really like as well is called Salvaged Pages. It's by Alexandra Zabruda, and it is a collection of pieces from diaries that were written at the time by young, mostly young people. But it is a wonderful example of testimony that's been written down and that gives you a huge overview of what happened. Because there wasn't just one Holocaust experience. People had many different experiences from those who were refugees who managed to escape and run away to those who were hidden, um, hidden children that were saved by righteous, or people that hid in forests, in cupboards, in holes in the ground, to those who were in ghettos, to those who were in the concentration camps, to people who were in the partisans who fought against the Nazis in small groups. So there are many stories yes. about the Holocaust, and it's important to look at more than one story. That being said, most of the memoirs that are written, you must remember, were from one person's point of view. And unfortunately, depending on when that book was written, will be a tale of 
how accurate or inaccurate the memory is right. of what happened. So again, memoirs are important because they give you the voice of the person who experienced the events that they're writing about. But in order to get a fuller picture, you need to look at some of the other resources. And the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. has an excellent website that I would highly recommend for people who are looking for information. And Yad Vashem in Israel, which is the museum which is known worldwide as the compository of all of the different stories, um, is also an excellent website that has wonderful information on it as well. Yes, and I would also like to direct anyone who would like more information about our center uh, here in Las Vegas to visit lvhresourcecenter.com. And there they can find more information about the center itself as well as access the card catalog to find out uh, all about the resources that we have here at the Sperling Cronenberg Mac Holocaust Resource Center. Susie, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today about the work that you do here at the Resource Center, and I want to thank you for doing that work to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive in our community. Thank you, Ty. It's always a pleasure to see you and to talk with you. The Holocaust marked a seismic shift in world history, particularly for the Jewish people. It was an event that changed the lives of millions, a fact to which those Holocaust survivors still living will attest. Unfortunately, the memory of the Holocaust is not foremost in the minds of many modern people. In fact, for some, the magnitude and even the facts of the Holocaust are up for debate. Holocaust denial is alive and well in the 21st century, and the objections they raise to the historical record and the testimonies of those who survived Hitler's hell had gained traction in some segments of society. At the same time, awareness of the Holocaust is in a fragile state, particularly among young people. Consider a recent survey conducted by the Claims Conference. The results of the survey revealed that, quote, nearly one-third of all Americans and more than four in ten millennials believe that substantially less than six million Jews were killed. Additionally, while there were over 40,000 concentration camps and ghettos in Europe during the Holocaust, almost half of Americans, 45%, cannot name a single one, and this percentage is even higher amongst millennials, end quote. With these statistics in mind and the awareness that the number of living Holocaust survivors declines daily, it is no overstatement to say that the need for Holocaust education has never been greater. Thankfully, people like Susan Dubin and places like the Sperling Kronberg Mac Holocaust Resource Center in Las Vegas are doing something about it. Indeed, we must commit to never forgetting the Holocaust, neither its history nor its lessons. You've been listening to the Gesher Podcast, the place where the evangelical and Jewish communities come together for conversations about the things that matter. I'm your host, Ty Perry. For more information about me, you can visit ty-perry.com. For further information about the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, visit foi.org. To ensure that you hear future episodes of the Gesher Podcast, subscribe to it on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or another of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom.